I'm really proud that I get to spend about half my day uh, every day talking about uh, the great work our community is doing to be this space of comfort and support. All right, we're happy to have Wolf here. Uh, After years of pursuing a diverse set of entrepreneurial ventures, Wolf is now focused on connecting resources to meet needs within the entrepreneurial community. Wolf's goal is to create opportunities and relationships for organizations our community feels passionate about. Wolf's immediate area of concentration are small business development, fostering strategic nonprofit partnerships, and generating cultural impact through the arts. Welcome, Wolf. It's awesome to have you here. It's great to be here. Yeah. So um, we were just chatting a bit before, and you know, you're up to some awesome stuff. I've admired your work for a long time, as long as I've known you, and uh, I'm just super impressed with what you're doing for Columbus and now beyond. So it's awesome to have you here and to get to hear your full story. Likewise, and it's uh, it's great to join the the amazing set of. Uh, interviews which you've done so far. It's been a pleasure getting to know about uh, so many details about so many of my friends I did not know prior. Yeah, that's the idea. You know, I think that what we're trying to do with the podcast is to really get people to share their full stories. Because, you know, even in, in my case with you, I know you, we see each other around, we've done some stuff together. And, you know, you're updating me on all the things that you're doing now, but I don't know kind of the full background and how you arrived at where you have. And I think that's really important for people to hear, for people to really understand that the way they know you now isn't exactly how your entire life has gone. And that, you know, that life experience really did serve you well uh, to get to where you are. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting ride for sure. Well, let's talk about it. So um, you're from Columbus. Yep. You uh, were just kind of sharing that you grew up in the short north before it was the short north. So tell me a little bit about kind of the background of your early days in Columbus. Yeah. So went straight home from the hospital from OSU, a couple blocks down the road. Uh, My parents bought a giant but very broken down house in the late 70s. And uh, we grew up in an area where there were a lot of college professors, but also some houses that weren't um, taken care of as well as they could have been. Uh, everyone would talk about the short north as being this really dangerous place. Uh, I didn't really experience that. Uh, we knew that you don't cross High Street at a certain time, and we knew that um, you, you didn't go to certain parts and, and you didn't act foolish. But uh, I found it a very welcoming community where it started with a lot of college professors. And uh, even to this day, a lot of the houses are still uh, grad students, which when you're five, six, seven years old, those are full adults. Now I'm, I'm meeting these youngsters that are doing those same roles. And, and then the neighborhood really started to change with uh, the, the growth of the LGBTQ community coming on in. Um, and just for context, yeah. Like what year would you? Because because I, I have my own experience with Short North, and I'm a little bit older than you, so you know I. But but I'm curious, kind of like what years would you say that started to happen? Yeah, so I was born in '83, and the LGBTQ plus community were starting to build that neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, by the time that I got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really became a safe space, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of pride in the neighbors who were moving in and saying that they're, they're buying this house and they're doing potlucks and they're doing parties. And, and it, it was just a great time. So 
Uh, I was born in 83. This would have been in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I moved into the short north. My first apartment in Columbus was in 1995. And in many ways, by then, it felt very much like on the way. It's kind of funny to think about now because you know, you're talking about 25 years later and it's now this big booming thing. But the reason I you know, kind of want to just highlight that is because I don't know that people who weren't here in the late 80s, early 90s, or aren't from Columbus really understand kind of the, the growth and the, the history uh, and the challenges that, that you know, existed in the neighborhood at that time. Absolutely. Even a lot of our neighbors, uh, I currently live in Italian Village. Uh, Italian Village 15 years ago uh, wasn't anywhere near what it is now. And uh, Wyland Park and other areas which are close to the core um, are, are continuing to grow and, and benefit in a way similar to how uh, my neighborhood in Victorian Village uh, did when I was young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about just kind of the influence that had on you, you know, growing up in that neighborhood and seeing uh, the community form. You know, there was a lot of pride. I remember hearing when I was in maybe high school or college that that Columbus was the San Francisco of the Midwest. You know, there was all these kind of comparisons in the per capita, the highest gay population in the country. There was, you know, kind of things that were thrown around how did that kind of influence you growing up in that time, in that place where that energy was really uh, noticeably different than really, you know, not just um, unique to Columbus, but let's not forget it's Ohio, it's the Midwest. You know, this was a pretty unique little neighborhood that was was starting to form. So I had a lot of interaction with it, just with neighbors having events and and being my, my gunkles and whatnot that I would go and visit. Uh, but I really started to understand the struggle when uh, I started to work at a church. So uh, at a very, very young age, um, I, I think it was 10 or 11, um, I started volunteering at King Avenue, which is now the church, which is open for all. Uh, but at that time, there was this real power struggle between the families uh, from, from slightly outside the neighborhood who were coming there and had been coming there for a very long time. And then this new generation of churchgoers with great faith, but who happened to also self-identify in the LGBT community. And there was so much back and forth to the point where Grace and Aetha had a lot of struggles having to stand up against the Methodist church because a lot of the things which have been a lot easier were paved from, from some of that hard work. And in 1984, our city council at the time refused to pass a uh, protection act. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've got a truly amazing city council president who's a part of that community. Yeah. And, and that just goes to show that the time which has passed, but watching our, our neighbors, both um, LGBTQ plus and the straight, having to stand up and fight and say, this is not right. This is not the kind of city we want to live in. Uh, really inspired me. And tell me about your parents. You know, what was their draw to the community? Was it was it intentional? Was it about cost of living? And and kind of how did they? Where was where were they in all in kind of this this time of life? Yeah. So uh, my parents are very, uh, I think, bohemians. The word that we use now, mm-hmm. um, uh, good old hippies. 
My father had every job you could imagine um, in his early adulthood, uh, was a mechanic, was a teacher, served in, in the military. But by the time I was born, he was an artist full time mm-hmm. and, and uh, a great one. And he was on the, on the road quite a bit. And then also his work really went uh, Wednesday through Sunday. What was his art? So it was wood engraving. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a uh, program called the Ohio Village, which is part of the Ohio uh, History Connection now. And he was one of the artists that would dress up in old-timey clothes and sit without air conditioning and just do his craft all day. That's awesome. And and I'm um, always touched, so I want to just kind of get a little more curious with you, but I'm always touched by people that that make that transition into the arts and and you know somebody as you're describing your dad is you know having kind of every job and including being a mechanic you know that that kind of like institutional societal parental generational programming that somebody breaks out of and goes into the arts uh, you know I think that's been a difficult thing for prior generations maybe less so today but have you ever talked to your dad about kind of that transitionary time in, in his life and, and you know, kind of how that was for him? Yeah. Um, so my dad uh, accidentally fell into the career. Okay. He had a lot of friends who were doing different projects he was working on, um, stuff like you and I would do. <laughs> and um, uh, this opportunity came up. And so one of his buddies was like, I can learn how to do leather smithing. I can learn how to do tin cutting. And then... Um, he just happened to be very good at some base skills, which translated so well to this 1860s art form. So when he started doing it, it was very simple. Mm-hmm. Little pictures of a dog, a little sheep, and it got exceptionally intricate. And, and so you got to watch that. Do you remember kind of seeing your dad as an artist? And you know, how, did that, how did that kind of inspire you or, or kind of start to form your programming? Yeah, so... it. It was really two or three different buckets that it fell into because from one standpoint, when my mother needed a break during the summer, she'd send us to go dress up in the old-timey clothes and, and sit and watch him tell people about the basic work. And then on a second um, bucket, uh, he was flown to Japan to go and, and showcase his art as part of a collective. Um, and then the third was that he was kind of a local celebrity at that time. Mm. He had his art showing everywhere. People would go through and uh, he'd be on the news. And in a time before internet, being on the news means you walk into a grocery store and everyone points and they say, hey, I saw you the other day. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was really interesting. But uh, at the same time, uh, we, we did not grow up with a lot of wealth mm-hmm. because he made the decision that he wanted to put our family and, and his lifestyle and everything first. And, uh, and so that's taught me a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the other side was my mother, who was uh, originally from uh, an amazing Jewish family up in Cleveland. And um, unfortunately, uh, she became an orphan at a young age and was adopted, not, not officially. I mean, she had a, mm-hmm. a family life with her, her older brother, it was party of five style and some good friends. And so her, her life was always very uh, evolving. Mm-hmm. And then when she met my father and the two of them fell in love and she was doing her work and they decided to move into this house in the short north, uh, my uh, paternal grandmother was not too pleased that <laughs> they were moving into such a dangerous area. Mm-hmm. 
but time showed that they made the right decision. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it was a very intentional move on their part to to raise your their family in the short north. Yeah, they they wanted us to have diversity of relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, are your parents still alive? Yeah, yeah. And and kind of you know in in now fast forwarding you know to how kind of things have shaped. Um, you know, did they, do they, have they talked about that with you? I mean, have you guys discussed like what the intention was and the outcome? They've always treated it as something which I think they feel as though I should know mm-hmm. because it's been so ingrained. Mm-hmm. And, and as a parent myself, I try and take a lot of those lessons and, um, and put them in. I mean, for me, it's a little bit different. I make sure that our son goes to a different festival in some different neighborhood in the city every weekend, mm-hmm. but that's just because we have the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. When uh, when my parents were looking at the the different places where we could be, it was, would we be in a neighborhood and would all of our friends be so very similar to us? Or would we be in a uh, an area where it was constantly evolving and ever-changing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were not a lot of kids in the short north when, when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I was raised by a lot of adults. And um, and that's absolutely true for for my five year old. Is most of his network are adults, but he does have some really cool little buds. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a bit of a uh, issue, and it'll be interesting to see kind of how Columbus gets shaped. You know, it, it's it's awesome. I mean, I, the Gunkle thing is like a, a amazing way to grow up, right? Um, and it would be nice if urban Columbus, if if these downtown neighborhoods had more families where this experience wasn't so unique to be a kid growing up in these neighborhoods. Uh, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there are so many phenomenal neighborhoods in Columbus and, and different ways and different paths that I'm a firm believer that there's something to be gained differently from each area. Uh, but the uniqueness is just starting to be tapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you have this experience. Uh, your parents are very intentional about it. Uh, it gets ingrained in you. It, it shapes who you are. I mean, and, and, you know, God bless them. I mean, it's, it's a pretty uh, courageous thing, really, at that time to make those kind of choices. And it, it shapes you uh, in the way that I would imagine that they intended. Uh, have you lived in Columbus your whole life? Did you... I traveled around quite a bit, yeah. but Columbus has always been home. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about kind of how you started to kind of take that life experience and uh, use it, you know, as you started to grow up and then maybe not all the way into your career, but, you know, how was it shaping you as you kind of got into your, you know, teens and early adult years? Yeah. So I have an older sibling and they... Um, were very much into books and great at school. And uh, they were very focused on their path of getting into the, the right high school, the right university. And then at, at a point, they um, went into library sciences. And I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what they've been able to accomplish because uh, it's so very different from my own path. Mm-hmm. And I've got a younger sister as well. And she has also found her own way. She's an artist as well. She's a great photographer. She now lives in New York. Uh, for me, it was never that cut and dry. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in hindsight, I think a great part of that is combination of uh, my dyslexia, which mm-hmm. keeps me um, figuring out new and different ways to to move through this universe. And then, um, how old were you when that became clear? Was diagnosed? I it, it wasn't really diagnosed mm-hmm. until uh, a little bit later in my life, but. Now that I understand it and mm-hmm. I've embraced it, I've been able to utilize it. Yeah, uh, I could see signs of it from from early childhood, mm-hmm. and um, some things which were hard for me taught me how to do better at others. Mm-hmm. And and so I w- took a look and started working every job I could get, um, and then uh, got into Boy Scouts just because I happened to have a friend who was in Boy Scouts, and put myself on a task to see how quickly I could rise to the ranks. Um, and it was, it was quick, um, with a ponytail all the way down my back. I, uh, reached the Eagle Scout rank, which is a top rank in scouts, uh, at a very early age, mm-hmm. which then created a lot of opportunities, uh, while others of my peers were going to summer camp to go and speak on a regional level mm-hmm. to, to work with my peers in different ways. And that led to some internships and gave me a very different kind of middle school and high school career. Yeah, I mean, it, when you say speak, so you're in middle school, high school, and you're actually doing public speaking to peers? Uh, to peers and leaders and speaking for how to grow and teaching leader, leadership development courses mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and, and really trying to pass on everything I learned quickly for as long as people would listen. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, um, yeah, I think... You know, before we uh, started to record, we were talking about kind of what you're up to. And I've been really impressed with what what you're up to. And I think, you know, you have a very humble way of sharing what you're doing and what you've done, um, which, you know, I don't actually think is like you trying to be humble. I think you don't necessarily uh, understand how unique it is for you to naturally do what you do, including something like that, you know, being a scout, a young, uh, a young man, a, I don't know, a kid even, yeah. and and really starting to talk about leadership, starting to speak, starting to really, you know, kind of have a adult dialogue and an adult conversation, a influential position. Uh, you know, I don't think that's a small thing. It seems to me like that, you know, is a pretty extraordinary thing that you were kind of naturally doing at a very young age. Uh, thank you. It was just the only thing I knew how to do. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it, it's it's a gift, you know, probably. And, you know, just um, curious though, kind of going back a little bit, you know, what's what's occurring to me is that I'm curious if if this kind of idea of growing up in the kind of way that you were growing up, where there were a lot of adults that were influencing you, where there was some, you know, kind of serious dialogues going on about uh, human rights, you know, is, is that part of where that kind of like gift comes from? Or do you feel like it's just kind of how you were, you know, naturally born into this world? Um, I, I believe that everything that happens to us influences everything that happens moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and and whether it's a tiny thing or it's a big thing, it it changes you slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in the case of human rights, after I climbed to the highest point of the the scouting tower, I ended up abdicating my my uh, 
my rank because at the same time, they were really making some terrible, terrible uh, decisions and actions and, and saying just the wrong things, which were creating organizationally organizationally and some of the greatest scout leaders i have ever met were from the lgbtq community yeah but you wouldn't have known it yeah because it wasn't honored organizationally right they took uh one of the words in the scout pledge morally straight to this extreme uh level and um it, it really disgusted me yeah and so, and you were how old when you you kind of started to take this position? Uh, about sixteen. Yeah. Again, I mean, look, you know, I I have a um, a sixteen year old, I have a uh, an eighteen year old, and a thirteen year old, and and they are actually now very interested in politics and what's going on in the world and human rights, and and it's amazing for me to see. It's really inspiring because I kind of think about what I was doing at sixteen and. I was probably not as thoughtful about, you know, what was going on in the world. And you clearly were, you know, at six, but 16 is pretty young. You know, you're still a young kid, a man, young man, and you're yet though really moved passionately about, um, you know, what's going on in the world and what's right. And, and, you know, the kind of things you're willing to sacrifice uh, for what you believe in. Um, I don't think I've thought about that way, but thank you. It, it's been, um, I, I view the chapters of my life as stepping stones to where I am. Mm-hmm. And it's rare that I compile all of them together. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, you know, again, is kind of part of the purpose of, you know, what we're doing on this podcast is to really show people kind of how the dots connect. Cause I believe like you do, that it is all serving us and it does all um, tend to make sense in hindsight. Doesn't always um, make sense along the way. And so when you say you didn't think about it that way, you know, it's probably because you were just doing what you believed was right at the time, and you weren't really thinking about how that was going to shape your life. But you you did feel like there was something there that you needed to do, right? I mean, to, to kind of step away and transition. And so tell me, kind of, you know, then what? Where did you go from there? Yeah. So um, after an internship I did, which, which took me around, I uh, wanted that traditional high school life. So I uh, went to my senior year of high school and uh, it was a great, great school. But unfortunately, because of some of my uh, previous successes, I didn't need to take all of the classes. And so I ended up in study hall, mm-hmm. which as a senior without a car <laughs> uh, uh, meant I had a lot of time on my hands. and. So I started to explore the idea of politics. Um, and the thing that was frustrating me the most was sitting bored in study hall. So I decided to run for the Columbus uh, Public School Board. And so I spent most of my senior year as a 17-year-old running against the people who ran the, um, uh, the group that was putting me in study hall. And that was a very interesting time because um, I literally just cut my ponytail off and, and dove into this and um, ended up having another internship with Nationwide Downtown and started OSU and all of these big life changes. How did, tell me though, how did the uh, the kind of uh, political efforts pan out for you? How was that experience? Yeah, so, um, so while I was doing the political efforts, I was doing the internship at okay. OSU. Okay. And then, um, so I turned 18 in September, the election was in November. Um, it, it was 
politically very challenging to run as a non-endorsed candidate because you don't have the party sending you all of the events. And there are events, several a night leading up to it, roundtables and whatnot. A non-endorsed 18-year-old. Non-endorsed 18-year-old. Yeah, let's not yeah. forget that, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's, you know, probably difficult to get people to take you seriously. And, and you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm touched by that. And, you know, it makes total sense to me because I know you and I know what you're up to. And we've talked about this and we'll get into it here in a bit. But um, again, like to make that decision, you know, most people that are bored in study hall are not, you know, going, okay, well, I'm going to get into politics. They're, I don't know, doodling or, you know, playing on their phones today or, you know, maybe daydreaming and, you know, and all of that is good. You're actually in action. You know, you, you are at a very young age, like getting super active. Uh, you know, again, that makes sense to me, but this is not the normal, you know, kind of path for a 17, 18 year old. Yeah. So um, my lifeline in the campaign came uh, when a young Andy, now our mayor, Ginther, who was running against me, I think he was maybe 26, 27 at the time, maybe even younger. He he was a a friend. He went to my church. Uh, we, we kept in contact. And when he realized I wasn't showing up at some of the events, he pulled me aside to ask why. Possibly because I made him look really mature as having a much younger person on stage. But uh, he reached out to his campaign and told them to make sure that I know about all of the events. And I've got everything uh, laid out for me so that I could fully participate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's running against you. He's running against me. Yeah. And and have you guys, you know, kind of connected on that, you know, later in life? Like, you know, that sounds to me like a pretty compassionate and and kind, generous, uh, truly, you know, that he's he's really interested in in people and and not, you know, uh, this isn't just about him and his success. Have, have you guys talked about that as time's gone on? We we haven't really delved into it ever, but it's always been a nod that we've yeah. recognized. Yeah. Um, and I ended up getting a little over 9,000 votes, which uh, uh, luckily was not enough where I had to spend (laughs) 18 to 22 um, uh, serving, but I was able to get uh, some things changed. And um, I did get to become friends with many of the people who were campaigning with me, um, including uh, Andy, uh, Mayor Ginther now. Um, And uh, they were able to do some amazing things based on uh, some of our interactions and then all of their hard work. But yes, that was the official end of my political career. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, yes, you know, Andy has clearly continued on and um, yet you've continued on in other ways. And 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 I first really, I think, kind of got to understand what you were up to through Independence Day. Um, and and I don't know kind of what the the time frame in between your political career and that is, and maybe you want to fill in the blanks a little bit there, but I'm, I want to kind of, you know, start to talk about how I know you and where I got to know you. Yeah. So in a nutshell, after the campaign, um, I uh, decided not to continue down the corporate path at that time. Um, I love school. I still love school. I just didn't have time for it with the endeavors that I was doing. So uh, gone to some real amazing blue collar work. I was afraid of heights, so I started hanging Christmas lights. Uh, the company I was hanging Christmas lights for uh, was paying the ground black as an asphalt steel coating company. Uh, and I was able to get in really early and we grew that from a couple of trucks to 
a big fleet with a distribution center and uh, concrete. And uh, we owned a bar, which was a terrible idea at the time. Um, but then um, I wanted to keep going a whole lot faster as the marketing director. My partners at the time were, were 10 years older than me. And it, it, it was just time for, for me to go to the next spot. Um, and that ended up becoming the Small Business Beanstalk, mm-hmm. which was a shop local network, originally B2B, where we'd connect the dots and say, you're a t-shirt company, you need a security alarm, you're a security alarm company, you need um, uh, business cards. And we'd connect those dots. And then that grew into a consumer-facing program where you'd go to a great company like Stoffs, order a medium coffee, pay for a small go to a local grocery store and get 10% off your order of $100 or more. Just tiny micro discounts that gave you a low reward for shopping local. Yeah, and, and, and what were you seeing there? I mean, you were, you, tell me about kind of your thinking. You know, was it, was it a business opportunity? Was there a, an opportunity to serve both? You know, kind of what was your, your belief behind why you started it? Yeah, so... Um, my extended family, my aunt and uncle had a set of coffee shops that um, were in California. And unfortunately, when uh, a major chain was growing, they were targeted and uh, uh, they had a big box coffee shop open across the store from each one of their locations and slowly uh, bled them out. And so I'd always had that passion. And then I saw a lot of our local retailers struggling and I knew that I could do something to help by. Uh, bringing the community together and giving them a reason to. And uh, so that was the first step. The next step after that is it's easier. It's easy to help a brick and mortar store. It's a whole lot harder when you're dealing with crafters or a food truck before most people were comfortable eating at food trucks. So uh, we started festival planning. We'd do an art fest one weekend. And then two weeks later, we'd help put food trucks out at, at a corporation. And then that grew into... Uh, the partnership with Independence Day, mm-hmm. where I got to become uh, sort of the business lead mm-hmm. uh, with that and bringing in small businesses. And uh, we started a lot of programs like the Food Truck Festival was, was something we spun out along with some great partners. Uh, and many of the other festivals we have here in town today, uh, we were able to offer some influence and support um, just because we needed it to support the small businesses. Yeah, and I think what what I've experienced with what you've done and you know, I've shared with you, and I've you know publicly started to really share as I've realized the impact that Independence Day Festival had on me. Um, when I walked into that festival for the first time, you know, I have said it. It felt like walking into my high school art room. It was like seeing my wife walk into the bar for the first time. Like when I knew, like this was something that I needed to be a part of that I felt really connected to. It was really the, in a lot of ways, kind of the impetus for me wanting to do something in Franklinton. And and in some ways, really, how gravity became what gravity became. There was an energy to it. It was like I had a summer internship when I was in uh, college out in San Francisco. And when I like got that vibe, like there was an energy that was just so uh, real and felt really alive and something I really felt connected to. And it wasn't something that I was actually currently a part of at all. In fact, you know, my life was very different. I was more in a corporate kind of path and I lived in the suburbs at this point and had a young family. But when I came into Franklinton and saw 
the skateboarders and the bands and the music and the art and the murals and the like kids from my high school pit, you know, that I knew like from the art room, I was immediately touched by what I was seeing. It was really uncommon for Columbus at the time. And, you know, I, I really, really applaud you and Adam and Mike and the many, many others that made that happen. Um, and I'm curious if you could just kind of like talk a little bit about this life experience that you've had, your life experience and how you connected to that festival. You know, you kind of brushed over it like it was one of many things you've done. And and that's true for you. But I'm, I feel like, you know, there's probably something more personal about that festival that you really also connected to. Yeah. Um, I mean, Independence Day is one of the great loves of my life. We, uh, I was, I was brought in at a fairly early point um, when Mayor Coleman asked uh, downtown Mike Brown to help put some energy in downtown on on the weekend. Uh, he rallied up uh, some of my best friends to this day, um, the Dodsons and Adam Brulettes and uh, the Aaron Corrigans, um, and they threw the first festival with almost nothing, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of support. Uh, I'm sure Mike pulled out a checkbook and gave him a tiny little check that covered a stage and we put it all on credit cards. And uh, then uh, when I was brought in, uh, in the middle of between years two and three, and they asked me to be the captain and we had no idea what that meant, uh, but it meant you get to figure it all out. We, we were growing. We went from a stage to two stages, to three stages, to four stages. And, and our team grew as well. I mean, uh, the captain role was something that really mattered mm-hmm. because uh, we had dozens of people. And at one point, we had over 300 people helping to organize the festival. Uh, but there was always one captain. So one person who uh, the buck stopped with them. And usually they worked their way through the organization as a lieutenant was the term. So either they'd run volunteers or food or uh, bands or beer or art, and then they would work their way up. Mm-hmm. So that... Um, that continued. And then we outgrew downtown. Um, we, when we started, we were able to use a bunch of the storefronts as art galleries because there was nothing in them. Mm-hmm. By the time we left downtown, there were multiple weddings happening on the same street the same day. Yeah. There were people living and needing to drive through the festival to get out. And um, uh, so logistically, we needed to find a new home. Yeah. You know, what I, what I, it's interesting, you know, that you, Kind of describe it the way you do the captain, you know. And again, I'm I'm observing from a, from an outside, you know. I'm, I'm I'm becoming friends with you and Mike, and getting to know Adam and understanding what you guys are doing. And I'm you know kind of an outsider, but you know really intrigued and and wanting to be supportive, sponsor that kind of stuff. But I'm watching what you're doing, and it appears to me like you're kind of making shit up, but yet like it's super intuitive and like dead on. You know, like the idea of captainship, that it's not going to be the same person every year and that, you know, there's not this like hierarchy of people that are making decisions, that it's truly communal. There's people bought in and it's, yeah, like the storefronts were empty and then they're not. And it's not a coincidence. And I think there's something really, really powerful about the intuitive way that you are producing things. And, and, you know, this was like a communal kind of mindset 
But you in particular have this kind of life experience and this in this intuitive way to just act in a way that you believe in that does really have uh, a, a way of resonating with a much broader audience and producing some real powerful outcomes. Is, is that kind of how you would describe the the independence experience? So Independence Day for me was a lesson, uh, which I now utilize every single day in my life, of working with people who are significantly better or more skilled or more talented um, than you at, at what, what they're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's humbling to think that I had a skill set that complemented that. Um, we were really a team. We were siblings. We, we fought and we hugged and we cried and we laughed uh, for years. It, it, it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And every year we made it more difficult. Yeah. And it, it was always an open form. Who wants to come? Who wants to play? Who will do the work? Because we don't need a bunch of dreamers. Uh, we, we have a ton of dreamers, but we need the dreamers that will also get shit done. Yeah, it's, it's a really important point I want to just underscore because I was once in a meeting where um, there was a bunch of designers and creatives in the room and I said something like, our superpower is we get shit done. And I, the, the woman that was um, the lead creative in the job like paused and like wrote it down. And it, and it was just kind of like a natural thing for me to say. I think it's something that is really, really important for people to hear. There's a lot of big thinking, but executing is critical. And you guys would do that. You, know, you would execute at a really, really high level. Well, probably my greatest contribution to Independence Day uh, with Mike and Adam and what became an independent team of six or seven people working on sponsorship was how do we grow this sustainably um, while not making about the money? Mm-hmm. So it was thanks to sponsors like yourself, like Jenny's, um, like some of them in the very early days where we would go and we'd say, we have this art project, which we'd like to do. It's going to cost us $5,000, but we also need to rent porta johns and do all these other things. So can we bring two of you together? You, you each give us a certain amount and then we will do that thing that we want to do specifically for you, but then we can also cover the non-restricted funds. Mm-hmm. And, and that grew us to the point where we were able to have firework displays mm-hmm. and tons of stages and tons of roads and different zones, which some of which have become their own festivals now. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and so it was that style of fundraising that we made up just because we had no idea how else to, no one wanted to sponsor the toilets. And then talk about the decision that, that, you know, I kind of look at as like, you know, um, I don't know what the kind of uh, sports parallel is, but you, know, you guys, you guys walked away uh, on top, you know, in my mind, there was a decision to, to no longer go forward. And I know that you're still meeting and talking, you know, as a group as to, you know, what the future looks like, but just kind of for a minute, talk a little bit about the decision to kind of stop the festival. Yeah, we, we grew to a point where one, we were gobbling up a lot of the resources from the community mm-hmm. where there were people doing amazing stuff that need $1,000, but they couldn't get it from a sponsor because they were already giving us $2,500. Mm-hmm. And then there was just a capacity issue. We were all growing. We, we were 
we were a decade older than when we started the stuff. And, um, uh, and, and there were a lot of um, younger partners who were saying, we would love to step up and, and do something, but there's not enough space. Mm-hmm. So we made the conscious decision. It was not an easy one. Uh, to do the last festival and then to become a nonprofit board that supports all of those other organizations that were like the early years of independence Day, mm-hmm. with our resources, with our connections, with our experience. And we, we throw a retreat where we have a bunch of different planners come and join us. We do gatherings. We still have a decent collection of iPads and trash can monsters that we can lend out to them. And, um, and I think, that it's more important that we have this culture of festivals almost every single weekend, at least from April 20th until the end of October, you can go to a different event every single week. That wasn't the case when we started. Yeah. Well, I think it really speaks to kind of the truth of why you got into it in the first place and who you, that group is at their core, that there was a very unselfish decision that was made, that there was a better path for the community for the festivals in the city to really do something different. And you've moved on. You're doing um, more amazing things. I'm really, really inspired and um, excited about kind of what's next for you. Talk a little bit about what you're doing with Atlas and Pride and um, the fund. And, and I'd love to kind of share with everybody your, your current program. Absolutely. So uh, I partnered with Sasha Saberi who has a corporate innovation background a little over a year and a half ago. And uh, we took a look at how we could do the most good for Columbus and the Midwest together. And the answer was um, innovation and, uh, and uh, venture support. Uh, I built my career around building community through bands and booze. And I, I realized that there's a huge opportunity to do even more with big checks. So um, we partnered with our friends at Loud Capital which is a group that believes in venture for people, essentially the, that it belongs to everyone. And if you work hard, you're able to, to, to get a piece of it. And when, when it occurred to us that we had this opportunity to help the community, uh, I went back on my roots and uh, back to my roots, I should say, and talked to the community about what the impact could be. Nationally, what the impact could be uh, spoke with the other groups that were already doing something, making sure that we weren't just duplicating another person's or group's effort. And we realized Columbus is a, a amazing home for so many individuals that are starting their companies and that are investing and growing, but it was still not equal. It, it, there, there were still barriers and we could come and we could affect change and we could bring resources to the region that nobody else is is seeking out and have that grow the whole community. So we we did the partnership. We uh, got everything kicked off. And um, I'm, I'm really proud that I get to spend about half my day uh, every day talking about uh, the great work our community is doing to be this space yeah. of comfort and support. Yeah, I think it's a really great story. You know, I think, again, you know, I'm what's coming up for me over and over again and in, in listening to you and seeing what you're up to is this kind of way that you're using your life experience and your intuition and your your gifts. You know, wherever this kind of you is emerging from, um, you continue to use it uh, in a way that is really impactful. And, you know, the Pride Fund in particular, I think, 
is is it's so it's so interesting that it's like such a no brainer yet not being done. You know that there is this community of people that can um, use the support and the investment and the um, tools. You know all the experience to really create. Uh, you know, in a way that that has a tremendous potential and isn't really being honored in that particular way. I mean, yes, today it's a very different time um, to be uh, in that community in Columbus, you know, than it, maybe it was 30 years ago. But um, where are the venture dollars? Are they there? Or is that still part of what's left in the kind of, you know, discrimination or the, you know, kind of lack of, of love and support that's still necessary. And, and it seems to me like you, you see that and, and you're intentionally trying to fill that gap and, and see there's an opportunity there for everybody to win. Uh, yeah. And we look at it from a slightly deeper level even where um, it's not just us working on this. It's the team behind the Leap Accelerator where there will be uh, an accelerator with an amazing group of 15 young people being able to come together in a comfortable space with their peers and learn these entrepreneurial skills. It's us working with the other funds locally and nationally uh, to help create opportunities. And we also know there's such a far way to go yeah. for um, white gay man in Columbus. It is absolutely a lot easier uh, to have opportunities now than it was 20 years ago. But some of those same barriers are affecting our uh, trans sisters of color in a, in a similar way than they were. Yeah. So when, when we're taking a look at it, it's how do we help uh, support the whole community? And um, that's why we've aligned with as, as many partners who will talk to us to teach us how to be better partners. Yeah. Well, there's obviously a lot of work still to be done. Um, and, you know... I applaud you for what you're doing and your courage and your strength. I, I know you don't see it that way. I know this is just kind of you being the Boy Scout that you were. This is you just kind of following your gut, your your passion, your beliefs. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's still courageous. It's difficult and challenging at times. I know these aren't easy paths when you're kind of out in front and you're pushing, you know, big ideas, important ideas, new ideas forward. It's, it's challenging. Um, so I give you a lot of credit and I uh, thank you and appreciate you for what you're doing. And um, yeah, anything else you want to kind of share in, in closing? I, I just greatly appreciate you having me and what you're doing for the community, the, the stories this podcast is telling, and also for being a leader to build spaces which are safe and are accessible for um, for the community to work together. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and I just want to kind of like conclude by just um, saying we didn't really talk about Wolf as, as a father, but you know you, you mentioned you know taking your son to festivals and and I am really wanting to just kind of highlight that there's this uh, experience that your father, your parents really uh, created for you and and how that has shaped your life. In a way that is now uh, generationally, as you as you use all of that experience to shape your your family's lives, um, is 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 really 
I think, you know, an important thing for people to hear that no matter what your background is, you have the opportunity to really make an important uh, decision to use your experience. Uh, you know, in your case, there's a lot of really, really great learning that you're using. Sometimes it's trauma and challenging uh, experiences that you can use. But um, however your life has been formed, you have the ability to use it and then show another generation what's possible. And to me, I think that's kind of how we're going to uh, make a, a difference in this world. And you know, I applaud your family, your parents, and you for what you're doing now with the next generation. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.